hopped on a bus in the uh, city of Detroit in the 1930s. And they tried to pick a fight with a lone man sitting at the back of the bus. They insulted him. He didn't respond. They turned up the heat of the insults. He said nothing. Eventually, the stranger stood up, and when he stood up, they noticed he was bigger, much bigger than they had estimated from his seating position. He reached into his pocket, handed them his business card, and simply walked off the bus and on his way. As the bus drove off, the young man gathered around the business card and read the words, Joe Lewis, boxer. You see, they had just tried to pick a fight with a man who would be heavyweight champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. Uh, experts of boxing to this day still are debating whether Joe Lewis or Muhammad Ali was the GOAT, the greatest of all time. What's the moral of the story? Moral of the story is this. You've got to know who you're dealing with, don't you? That's true in life. It's even truer when it comes to God. See, the biggest problem for Christianity in our world, believe it or not, is not atheism. Right? Most people still believe in God. The biggest problem, though, is that we don't know the God that we say we're believing in. We don't know the God we're dealing with. For most Australians, the God they believe in is pretty much a God that we fit around us. God is made in our image, like us, but a little bit bigger and a bit more powerful, sort of like a Marvel superhero. Now, that might be nice, but it's not the true God, is it? And a God like that isn't really going to change our lives or change the world. Well, Joshua, this book that we're looking at, is so great because in Joshua, we're going to meet God as He truly is. And yes, He will make us uncomfortable. And yes, He may even offend us. But then you see, and only then, when we meet the true God, will it really begin to make a difference. And I'm going to pray that God will do that for us today. Why don't you join me? Father God, we know that today you've promised that when your word is opened, that you will speak. So we claim that promise, and I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you might really, truly speak to each heart today, whether they know you or not, that you will encounter people through your word. Amen. Uh, today is about Jericho, but it's really not about Jericho. Because I think the key to this passage is just three odd verses. We didn't read it before, so I'll show you on the slide. And these are actually the verses I'm going to concentrate on, believe it or not. Look at what it says. It just happens just before chapter 6 that we read. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now that is odd, isn't it? Right, these three verses are so strange. Even more strange when you remember the context. Let me just quickly give you a recap. Last week, uh, we saw Israel miraculously cross the Jordan River, uh, which was their Red Sea experience all over again. But the Jordan River is important because it was the geographic boundary between them and the Promised Land. So it was a clear sign, wasn't it, that God was leading them to now take the Canaanite cities on the other side of the river. And Jericho was going to be the first. 
Now, in Joshua chapter 5, which um, those of you who are in community groups, you would have looked at this probably. Um, this new generation in Joshua 5 renewed their identity as God's chosen people. So all the men were circumcised. Would not have been a pleasant day. But anyway, they celebrate the Passover for the first time after that since Egypt. And as a sign that their desert wandering years were over, the miraculous food, the manna that they had for 40 years, all of a sudden ceased from that day onwards. Right? It could not be any clearer, could it, that God was now going to hand this generation everything that He's promised them, starting with the land, starting with Jericho. So what a surprise then. When Joshua meets the commander of God's army standing there in front of Jericho, sword drawn, ready for battle, and asks him, whose side are you on? That we should get the answer we got. Neither. He's, he's not on Israel's side. He's not on Jericho's side. He says, but as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. He's on the Lord's side. Like, that's really strange, right? If you were in Joshua's shoes the day before a big city battle, you'd be a little worried. You'd be a lot worried, wouldn't you? What? God isn't automatically on our side? But Joshua, you see, knew better. His answer, the answer for the commander of the Lord's army, it doesn't make Joshua worried. It actually leads him to worship. Did you see that? He falls down face down in reverence. And the, the word there is worship. Because this guy isn't just any general, is, you see. He's not even just any angelic being. Joshua knew that this was likely an appearance of the Lord himself, of God himself. Which is why Joshua needed to take his sandals off because he's now in the presence of God. He's just talked to God, which makes where he's standing the holiest of grounds. Now, this is also significant because Joshua here has had his own Moses moment. Some of you may know the story of Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus 3, where Moses was commanded to take his sandals off because he was standing on holy ground. Right? So this is what happens. But then now the episode ends. Right? These are an odd few verses. Now, most sermons will skip it. No children's Bible has it. But as I want to say to you again, it's actually the key to understanding the whole battle of Jericho. And the two key ideas I want to pick up are this, holy and heavenly. You got that? Holy and heavenly. Without both, Joshua could not hope to win at Jericho or in any other battle. So first is holy. God reveals himself as holy. And second is heavenly. God reveals that this battle is heavenly. All right, so let's go. Holy. What does this word holy mean? Well, the basic meaning of the word holy is set apart. And it can be applied to God or it can be applied for God. All right? Applied to God, God is holy. God is set apart. Applied for God, see, something or someone can be set apart for God and they can become holy for Him. Now, we're going to focus mainly on the first meaning that God is set apart. Now, what does that mean, though? What does set apart mean? Again, that's kind of like, well, here's an easy way of understanding it. To be set apart is to be the GOAT, right? You know, what GOAT stands for, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. You see, in any field, it doesn't matter professionally, but I think especially in sport, um, and if you play any sport, you do realize, don't you, how big a gulf lies between you and the best of the best. 
Uh, just, take, just take running, for example. This is not one of my sports. Pastor Marshall, you'll know because you're a long-distance runner. Who's this guy? Anyone know? Kipchoge, Kipchoge yeah. Eliud Kipchoge. <laughs> he ran a sub-two-hour marathon. 42-plus little bit kilometers in under two hours. First man to do so. That's 21 kilometers an hour. That's two minutes, 50-second kilometer. Those of you who've done park run, he would have done the park run in 14 minutes. But then he'd do that eight times without a break. Right? Do, do you see, no matter how good of a runner you think you are, the distance between Kipchoge and you is so great. That golf is so great because he is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time. When we say that God is holy, that's the idea. God is so uniquely and supremely far beyond us, above us, that you can't even imagine it. That's what holy means. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah gets a vision of God and the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. Now in the Hebrew language, when they want to emphasize something, they repeat it. So a deep pit would be pit, pit, right? Deep darkness would be dark, dark, okay? But here, the angels are saying, holy, 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 a three times repetition. God is the goat, goat, goat. And this is applied in every single area when it comes to God. He is holy in his power, in his majesty, in his justice, in his mercy, in his love, in his sovereignty and control, in his goodness, in his faithfulness, in his patience. You take any of those attributes, you think of the greatest of those that you know of, and God is going to be far beyond that because he is holy. Now, it's especially when it comes to God's moral purity. The holiness of God is often talked about in the fact that he is so morally perfect that he does not even have a speck of evil or a tiny bit of untruth or injustice or anything wrong in him. See, now you understand why a holy God can ever only be on God's side. Did you, did you get it now? Why a holy God can only ever be on God's side? Because the moment that you, me, Joshua, Israel, or anyone treats God as if he exists for you, that he must be on your side, you are going to make God less than he is and therefore less than holy. And Joshua needed to understand that, didn't he? And I wonder if you really understood that. Have you really, really Grasp the holiness of God. You see, God is not your Uber at your beck and call to make your life easier. God is not your therapist to make you feel better about yourself. God is not your Google Maps there just to guide you when you're lost. God is not your Wikipedia to give you superior knowledge about life. God is not your boyfriend or girlfriend to keep you from feeling lonely. God is not your coach to help you achieve your dreams. God is holy. God is holy. Before anything else, Joshua needed to know that. Before anything else, we need to know that. 
Now, this is important when we understand holiness because only then can we begin to make sense of probably the most controversial and offensive and disturbing part of these events of Jericho and Joshua, another part that does not make it into children's talks and children's Bibles. The word in Hebrew, it's there, it's cherem, and it's variously translated in our English Bibles as totally destroy, completely destroy, or devoted to. Okay, so you see it in verse 21 of chapter um, 6, it should be, I think. Sorry, the reference is wrong. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, you'll see a footnote a couple of times there explaining that idea of harem. And it'll say, the footnote will say, the Hebrew term refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord often by totally destroying them. Let's admit it, this is shocking, isn't it? Now, if I had a couple more dedicated sermons, I could try to adequately deal with it, but I can't. So for now, I'm just going to give you seven quick points, and you can actually follow a link on your outlines, or there's a link up there on your digital outlines, there'll be a URL. So let me just talk through these seven points, and if you have other questions please come and uh, follow up on this or come and see me and chat some more. But the first thing is obviously that, that harem actually flows out of the holiness of God in two ways. Firstly, because it is God's right to punish human wickedness in this way. He is holy. He gets to decide the terms, right? In whatever way he wants as the creator, the holy creator, he gets to punish wickedness in this way if he wants. So that's the first way. The second is also because harem is about what is devoted and set apart for God. Remember that second meaning? You can be holy for God. Somebody can be set apart for Him. That's the other idea. We won't go into too much about harem. Second point, it was only for that time in Israel's history, only for that time, and only applied to the cities of Canaan. It wasn't a scorched earth policy not to the towns, not to every village, just to the major cities. Number three, this is important. Harem was delayed and specific judgment for the extreme wickedness of the Canaanites. 400 years earlier, when God had made promises about the land to, the, to the Abraham, to Israel's ancestor, he had said to Abraham, your descendants will inherit the land, but not for a few hundred years. Because the wickedness of these people, the Canaanites, had not reached their full measure yet. See, God was delaying and delaying and delaying judgment until, presumably, the wickedness of this land was so great, so unbearable, that it involved everyone, including, inconceivable as it is, including even the little children, that it was just too much and judgment had to come. Number four, harem was also to ensure the sanctity of Israel's worship of God, of Yahweh, in that God was very specific, destroy all of this so that there would be no idolatrous um, enticement, right? After Israel took these cities, there wouldn't be any remnant of the old religion that would bring them um, and lead them astray, all right? So it was more about religion as well. 
Um, number five, harem was not ethnic favoritism. wasn't like just God, you know, only did this for the Jews against others. Because guess what? He says in Deuteronomy 9 that Israel was not more righteous than these nations. And in fact, even in this passage we read, Israel themselves could come under harem. We'll actually see that next week if they were to be disobedient. Number six, harem was not genocidal in scope or application. Uh, Here's a quote for you from one of the commentators who wrote that warfare in Joshua, even with the harem command, does not empty the land completely or destroy all the inhabitants. Remember, it wasn't a scorched earth policy. God went ahead of Israel to drive out the inhabitants, okay? And he would do that because the fear of God would come and presumably inhabitants of the cities would start escaping. Once they were out of the cities, they weren't subject to harem because Israelite action was directed against the cities. Not all the inhabitants were killed and even in the face of utter destruction of cities, survivors remained. Israel's possession of the land was accomplished over several years while Israel dealt in the, dwelt in the midst of the remaining Canaanite inhabitants, okay? So that's a, a good kind of um, a balance to what, how this was applied. And last of all, and quite importantly, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when I talked about Rahab, harem, this total destruction policy, is actually for us a picture of final judgment and hell, which means that it cannot be misused to justify ethnic cleansing or holy war or a Christian revolution, right? It is for us today a picture of God's final judgment in hell, which is coming in the future when Jesus returns. And we know from the Bible that hell will be like that, total, thorough, complete. And of course, hell itself is very offensive and difficult to swallow. But as I said two weeks ago, hell is real. Like, we, we don't want to talk about it much. We don't want to, but the Bible talks about it. Hell is just. And hell is not the opposite of love because Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived, spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And again, if we have any sense of God's holiness and our sinfulness, then we all know that hell is something that we all deserve. All right, that's very quick. But if you want to ask more questions, please do again. Uh, check out that link and there's some follow-up resources for you there. But I want to go to the next one. And that is, what about hope? Because if God is a holy God and God is on God's side, then what hope did Joshua and Israel have? Or for us, if God is holy and we are sinful and we all deserve hell, what hope do we have? Well, guess what? The answer to both is the same. The only hope we have is that God deals with sin in his people. See, God has to find a way to turn aside his holy judgment on his people. And the only way that could happen for Israel and for us is through the shedding of blood. You got that? Sin, judgment has to be dealt with through the shedding of blood. Now, if you were at CGs, you will have done the early part of Joshua chapter 5. Remember, unpleasant as that is, the whole of Israel, the men were all circumcised. And then they celebrate the Passover. So they renew their identity and commitment to being the people of the covenant or God's promise or agreement with them. 
Now, it's no accident that the signs of the covenant, circumcision and Passover, deal with exactly those things. Remember, sin and judgment by the shedding of blood. I mean, circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin is symbolic to cutting away sin through the shedding of blood. Passover is a reenactment of the time when the blood of the sacrificial lamb protected God's people from the judgment of God on Egypt. You see, Israel's only hope in the face of God's holiness was that sin is dealt with, that judgment passes over them, and both happen through the shedding of blood. And guess what? That's our only hope as well, isn't it? See, all of these old covenant signs are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross was for our sin, for our judgment. He is cut off in our place. He is judged in our place. And hope is found in His blood shed for us. Now see, I need to ask you at this point that... If you don't yet trust in Jesus, if his blood doesn't cover you, then you need to, don't you? Because God is holy and hell is horrible, but no one has to go there. If you have Jesus, then anyone can have hope in the presence of a holy God. So will you today? Well, now we can finally talk a bit about Jericho. Right, Though Jericho was fortified, its walls were impenetrable, Israel and Joshua needed to know that Jericho was not their greatest threat. Right? Jericho was not their greatest threat. If you don't understand the holiness of God, that's your greatest threat. And we'll actually see that played out next week. So more of that next week. But see, once you are in a right relationship with a holy God, any other threat in life, Jericho or anything else, is a walk in the park. And that's how this Jericho episode is actually portrayed. It's a walk in the park. Because this battle is a heavenly battle. And the God, the holy God of heaven, is fighting it for them. Now, because of time, and because it's so well known, and we just, you know, the children's talk had it all there, so we will not go through it in detail. I'd love to get, encourage you to read it again, maybe today. Just in your own time, the whole of chapter 6. But I want you to, to, to read it slowly, kind of dwell in it, imagine it played out. It's a very vivid and, 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 and a very active sort of uh, passage. I'll just give you some highlights to notice that maybe will enhance your reading. Number one, um, it's very clear that God is present with them and God is leading them. Um, the marching order, right? The priest blowing the horn, right? Then the ark. And then the army, which is a strange order if you think about it in military terms. It's like, you know, the city parades with the giant floats and the mascots? Imagine them going first before the tanks in a battle. Right? That doesn't make any sense. But of course, this isn't about the battle, right? Because the ark and the priests that precede the ark, the ark is the key. Last week we saw the ark is that symbolic presence of God. It's very clear. The battle is his. He's leading them. This is all about God. The second is, uh, this account emphasizes that the people are pretty passive, right? They walk, but they can't make any sounds until the final day. And even then, they only have to shout. Thirdly, it was an act of faith. 
Imagine that every day for seven days walking around those big walls. And on the seventh day, walking around it seven times. And as you're walking past those walls, seeing the, the defenders of the walls up there and how strong these walls are. It's an act of faith, right? They're walking around it all the time. They'd be thinking, is God going to come through for us? Because we're not doing anything. But that's the point. It's an act of faith. All right? I wonder what in the Christian life is a little bit like that. It seems like you're not doing anything. But if you understood the holiness of God in His plan, you're actually doing the most powerful thing you could be doing. I think it's prayer. Don't you think? Yeah? Number four, their obedience was key. The command to devote everyone and everything to destruction. That is the key. And crucially, they were not to take any of the loot for themselves. Not in this battle. In other battles, they were allowed to. But this one, they couldn't. We'll come back to that next week. Number five, of course, is that Rahab and whole family are saved. As God's promise, as God promised from a couple of weeks ago. Um, just a bit of a footnote, how much was Rahab saved? Well, you'll need to know that Rahab actually becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of King David. That she actually becomes in the very family line of King David. And even more important than that is, of course, she is now an ancestor of King Jesus. And you see her included in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Look that up later. All right, so in the midst of all of this battle and bloodshed is this, bloodshed is this tender mercy and the wide open arms of God. That's actually the emphasis of this passage. Okay, so what do you see there? While that very catchy kid song that we sang says Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, do you know Joshua 6 actually emphasizes that Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho? Like that's the whole point. He didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. It was a heavenly battle fought by God for them. But you, you see the point, and you see how this links to holiness, right? If the holy God is for you, then all of heaven's resources are behind you, and you cannot lose. And so it all comes down to this question. Is God for you? I'll get the band to come up because we're going to finish up soon. But let's... um. Have a think about that. Is God for you? Well, if you are a follower of Jesus, I've got good news for you. See, even though God is holy, and even though God is ultimately on God's side, if you trust in Jesus, God is for you. He's for you. Look at those verses from Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And this is how we know that God is for us. He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you have Jesus? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? If the answer is yes, then nothing you are facing or will face in life can threaten you. Whether it's sickness or depression, whether it's unemployment or financial insecurity, whether it's broken relationships or loneliness, whether it's persistent temptations or habitual sins, whether it's persecution or ridicule for being a Christian, if God is holy 
and God is for you and he is if you belong to Jesus, then heaven's resources are behind you. And he wants to fight your battles for you. So don't stop trusting him. Don't stop walking behind him. Don't stop obeying him, even when you don't understand. Because of Jesus, the holy God is with you and in you and for you. Why don't we pray? Holy and mighty God, we thank you for Jesus. Without him, we stand in threat of hell that we so deserve. With him, we are safe and you are for us. What wonderful promises. I pray for the hearts here that really need to know this again or know this for the first time. That with Jesus, you are for us and you are with us. And so help us as we go to work and study or whatever it is this coming week to know that and to live confidently in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand and sing about, you know, what a good God that He is.